0: Appreciate it, Mary. And all your practice and all you've done there. That's great. Appreciate it greatly. We need to have a about a one minute little meeting after church this morning. The I men, you don't have to not everybody has to stay here, but it won't take long, just about a minute and get a little, little job taken care of. And there's our little paper still going around that I gave out to pass around? Where did he did you get to see that slave tunics? Oh, I'm just kind of passing it around. Well, I didn't want to print off 20 of them in color there and take up all Joy's colored colored ink cartridges there. But it was just to give you an an idea. Last week we talked about the slave tunics and how they only covered one shoulder. And I found some images. I found a picture of a statue that was made of a slave, and you see the and then that handsome guy on the very first one there. You know, that was obviously in a reenactment scene there. But you get the idea of what we were talking about and what, what uh, Peter was talking about when he talked about putting on the apron of a slave and, and doing a slave's work. So we're having a little Valentine's luncheon next week. And let's see, that's next Sunday, the 14th, this Thursday. I don't want to get in trouble. So if you want to say something or sing or anything, why that'll be okay. <laughs> hey. That would overwhelm them, I'm sure. That's an idea. I don't think that you'd want me back there doing that. You want to send a delegation? <laughs> okay, we see where that's going. I'm not. I'm off that subject right there. Okay, don't forget to pray for the goose. I've been sending it, emails, and kind of keeping you updated with that. So uh, please continue in, in prayer for them. All right, I guess that's all the announcements I've got for this week. Nothing else on my mind that I can think of. So anyway. We're going to continue on with our little series here about slaves and slavery and so on in the New Testament. And basically what I'm trying to give in this series here is not everything in the New Testament. That would take months because there are, oh, wow, probably I'm going to say over 200 various terms used describing slaves and slavery and slave language and terminology and so on. So we wouldn't be doing that. What I'm trying to do here is just show us how it's used. The uh, emphasis the New Testament places on that subject and the fact of how it's really hidden to us by the translation that we use. Uh, And it's not just singled out to the King James Version. It's every Version that's out there, but but two that, well three that I know of that consistently translate the word correctly, which is slave or slavery or the, all the other uh, words that go along with it. Which, by the way, we're going to discuss those this morning a little bit. Um, Edgar Goodspeed, we mentioned him. He did a translation of the New Testament and back, in, I think it was in the twenties, and he consistently used. Uh, and, and translated the word doulos as slave. So has the recent uh, translation of uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. They tr- consistently, in most every place that I see, translated as slave. And then also the Concordant Literal Version also tends to translate regularly and pretty consistently as slave. So you don't find it very often. And consequently, as Charles Spurgeon said, our authorized version softly translates it as servant. And by that he meant, you know, the word servant doesn't carry the the harsh connotations uh, that the word slave does. And I think that has, when I read that, I thought, well, I think that's true. I never took the word servant in the same way that I understand the word slave. And that's one of the things that motivated me to pursue this line of uh, study and the topic that we've been talking about and what the, the culture was like in the day in which the scriptures were written. And so that would help us understand what you know Jesus and Paul and James and so on and Peter, Jude and, and, and the rest, John, were talking about when they used this word doulas, as slave along with other New Testament words as well, which we're also going to look at this morning. And so, it, for me, has really transformed my way of looking at this and thinking about the Scriptures. And, of course, we've noted that there was a lot of differences in New Testament biblical slavery as opposed to what you and I connote when we think of slavery with the 18th century. Yet, on the other hand, there are a lot of similarities. And, of course, one of them we can mention right off. What was the one common thing to all slaves? They had an owner, a master. Every slave. Doesn't matter. And that was true of 18th century slavery, 19th century slavery, and 20th century slavery. And it's true of 21st century slavery today. And... You know, slavery is alive and well today, and we need to really understand that and know that, that it's going on around the world. It's just being, not really being brought out in the forefront a lot, uh, but it's alive and well. And, and, oh, my, I should have remembered the, the figure that was tossed out or the number, I should say, yeah, that was tossed out as to how many are really in bondage, in slavery today. But I don't remember what it was, so I'll, I'll get that later. What I want to talk about today is just rehash a couple of the terms we've used already and then go on to look at some others. So this is going to be one of those drudgery kind of things. We're not going to look at every verse, obviously. That would take a while. But I want to give a sampling of the various New Testament terms, some of them of which will be, I think, a shock to you, a surprise. Let's look first at the word uh, "doulos," which is just the ordinary, typical word for slave. So let's look at just a couple of examples. Matthew chapter eight, verse nine. So this means we got to be ready to move. I'll try not to go fast as I typically do and slow down. Matthew chapter eight and verse nine. <clears throat> and here, the Lord was bringing healing to a, a master's slave. And if you look at verse 9, where the master said, Lord, I'm, I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And then if you'll look over at Luke chapter 12 and verse 45, we're looking, of course, primarily there, that would just be, and, and that's the word that's used for male and female slaves typically. But sometimes there is there is a word for a female slave. But look in, oh, Matthew, I'm still in Matthew. Let's get over to Luke 12 and verse 45. And... In this passage, he says, But and if that slave say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men's slaves and the maidens, the the female slaves. And that's all that word maidens means there, the female slaves. And quite frankly, I think that (laughs) lends itself to being kind of a soft translation. I don't think any of us think of as a maiden in the same way we think of, of as a slave, and there's a difference. So you have the first one, but if and that servant, that male slave, and then it talks about the plural, the men slaves, and then the maidens, the female slaves. Now, there is a word specifically that means a female slave, and if you'll just turn back a couple chapters to chapter 1 of Luke. And this is used metaphorically here, of course, with Mary. Mary the mother of Jesus, and as she was learning about this uh, new thing that was going to happen to her. If you look at verse 38, and Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Well, that's the word for female, a female slave. And so if you wanted to be ultra literal there, you would say, behold, the slave of the Lord. But in Greek, you would know that it meant a female slave by the ending of the word. And then if you look up at verse 48 as well, it says, therefore he hath regarded the low estate of his slave. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. And then if you look at Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and here we're talking about a A compound word. Colossians 1 7. Where Paul, referring to one of his fellow workers, he says, As ye also learned of Epaphras, your dear fellow slave, fellow servant, says in, in English there, but it's fellow slave, your co slave, in other words. And if you turn over just a couple chapters to the right, to chapter 4 of Colossians, you'll see that same uh, word used again. It's sun doulas. He says there, All my state shall uh, Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow slave in the Lord. Of course, the the word minister there is the word where we get our word deacon, deaconos. And so he's a servant, but he's serving as a slave, a fellow slave in the Lord. And then we have the word dulea, which is slavery. Galatians chapter 4. So you're going to turn back to the left a few pages again. Galatians chapter 4. and if you looked but while we're at it if you look at verses 22 and 23 he talks about uh Abraham there who had two sons one by a bondmaid the other by a free you see the contrast there but it's female slave and then in verse 23 he who was of the bondwoman the female slave again but we want to we want to look at verse 24 where he says concerning these, which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to slavery, which is Agar or Hagar or which reduces to slavery. And of course, Paul's just using that again as in an, an allegory and it's a metaphorical usage of that word, but talking about, Bringing one into the aspect of slavery. Bringing one into subjection. And then if you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. Hebrews 2.15. And you'll, you'll see, this word here I think is used metaphorically in all the instances when it talks about bringing someone under bondage. I guess it me greatly if I'd get over to Hebrews 2.15. Where he says there, And deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage or subject to slavery. And, of course, he's talking about being in bondage or slavery to, to sin and to death, the outcome of it. Those are the noun usages of the word. We're going to look at a few verbs here for a moment. Let's look back now to Matthew chapter 6. I'll tell you one thing this does. It sure does keep the Bible limbered up, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. And there you find where Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. No man can be a slave to two masters. Because the word serve there is from our word that we're talking about, to serve or to be a slave. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one And despise the other. You cannot be a slave or serve as a slave, God and mammon. You can't do both. Then if you'll look over to John chapter 8 and verse 33. We've, I think, looked at this earlier. This verse. Verse. But it's, it's the idea of being enslaved or brought into slavery or serving as a slave. In John 8, 33, then they answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never enslaved or in slavery to any man. So how sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And you'll notice, we've talked about it earlier, but you'll notice all the continuing constant contrast between freedom and being enslaved now if you go over to 1st Thessalonians 1 9 1st Thessalonians 1 9 has a uh, another metaphorical usage but it's an important one First 1 Thessalonians one nine, he says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye, that is you believers at Thessalonica, how ye turned to God from idols to serve as a slave the living and true God, or to be slaving to the living and the the, uh, the, the living and true God. I want to read the. Concordant version says this, and of course, you know, that's a very literal rendering uh, of the scriptures. And it says there, for they are reporting concerning us what kind of an entrance we have had to you and how you turn back to God from idols to be slaving for the living and true God. And I hope that helps us to see that, you know, the transformation that took place when you consider a New Testament first century believer who was accustomed to idolatry heard the gospel being preached responded to that believed on the Lord Jesus that he was the promised coming and if we were to take Isaiah particularly He was the coming slave. You know, Isaiah makes a strong association between the branch, or he's called the servant, which is our familiar word in the Old Testament for a slave. He was the promised messianic slave that was to come. And here these Thessalonican believers having uh, idolaters having heard this message turned from their idolatrous worship not to be any longer slaves because they had been slaves to their idolatry but now they became slaves to the living and true god what a transformation that took place in their lives then there is the picture or the idea of you know, being brought into slavery, to, but to be enslaved or captivated by something. So we'll look at Romans chapter six, Romans six eighteen, <clears throat> and of course, the word for slave there is used frequently throughout that chapter. We read read most of it last week, but we we. In particular, when we look at the word in verse 18, he says, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And it's the word enslaved, E-N, enslaved to righteousness. Having been set free from sin, ye became enslaved to righteousness. And what we're trying to really emphasize and point out here is that there's really no sense uh, in, in one certain New Testament sense. We're, we're never free. In other words, you, you, become, you, tr- you just simply make a transition from being a slave of one thing to a slave of another. You gain your freedom from your enslavement to sin so that. We can become God's slaves or enslaved to him or, as it says here, to be enslaved to righteousness in service to him. And if we look over at um, back to Galatians chapter, well, it's down at verse 22. I guess I ought to note that as well. He says, but now being made free from sin and become enslaved to God. And that's how we need to be viewing ourselves. You know, we have this tendency to focus on the freedom side. I've been set free from sin. And what a great and liberating thing that is. But on the other hand, we need to make sure that we are focused on the other side of the equation and enslaved to righteousness, enslaved to God. And, of course, if we are enslaved to righteousness, if we are... Being and doing and practicing righteousness, then we are indeed God's slaves and we are enslaved to Him. And of course, there's a wonderful outcome to that. Look over now then to uh, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. Galatians 4 3. And a great passage here as well. In verse 1 he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a slave, though he be lord of all. In other words, while they're a child, you know, they, they have a master, just like a slave has a master. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were enslaved under the elements of the world. That is, nothing you could do about it. You were enslaved to the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem or buy out them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And of course... There is another step involved there that we're not going to go to today in, in adoption. Second Peter two nineteen. <clears throat> Here Peter says that <clears throat> um, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, that is, whatever defeats a person or makes that person worse in a worse condition, he says of the same is he And, of course, our English there says brought in bondage. Of the same, he is enslaved. Whatever overpowers you, whatever overtakes us. And so we have to be careful as we walk the Christian life. What he's referring to there is is our, our conduct, our walk, and not allowing the things of this world, the things of this life, to overtake us, to enslave us. If you look at... Another interesting word. Well, I'm going to skip that one there. I want to go to uh, 1 Corinthians 9.27. And that's, of course, is a familiar passage. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Concerning the race. of course, we know there he says that in verse 24 that... um, He says, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize, and so run. So run. There is a way, in other words, to run the race. And, of course, the idea then is so that you might obtain, you might accomplish that which the winning of the race would be, which he tells us in the next verse is to get a crown. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. So there's something at the end of the race, a prize to be sought. So in verse 27 then, in view of that race and finishing it so that he can win the crown, Paul says, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. That is, I bring it into slavery. In other words, Paul's saying, I treat my body as if it was my slave. He doesn't let his body run him or control him. He is master over his body. And so then he says, Lest, why? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be A castaway. Or as we know that word there. Adakimas means. Unless I should be disapproved. Or rejected. From the prize. If I have not run the race properly. So what is he telling us there? That during the course of the race. It's important. To keep the body. Under subjection. We're not to live. According to the lust of the flesh. He tells us in other places, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, and so on. We're to keep those under subjection. We're not to just live any whimsical way that we feel like. There has to be a desire on our part to want to live and walk before the Lord in such a way that we are in control. And Paul didn't want to be overcome by that. So he says he... He keeps under his body. He brings it into subjection like a slave. Now, I'm going to tell you, as far as I'm concerned, that is a real battle right there. When I'm standing in front of the refrigerator, especially. And that's a, fa- that's a favorite place of mine. I was up and down several times this morning. I go down the stairs to the den and study. And then I run upstairs. And oh, I made myself eat blackberries, blueberries, an apple. And then I gave in to this nice big muffin and some coffee too. And I said, okay, that's enough. Now, it's, it's hard to practice that. And I know I'm jumping on a sensitive area, but I'm just saying it's sensitive because I'm right there with that one. But this applies to all areas of our life. So there's a reason Why the lust of the flesh can hurt us and damage us so much is because for Paul, and as I look at myself, I think, hey, it's a whole lot easier to stand up here and teach and preach the truth. But then when I walk down here where I've got to do the same thing, I have to be there myself. I've got to put those things into practice. Because if I just spend my life teaching and preaching these things to others and I don't do it myself, there's no prize at the end of the race for me. No crown awaiting me. No well done, thou good and faithful slave for me. And I don't want to be in that kind of condition. So I'm working at it. I'm working at it. And I hope you see the truth of that, that it would move you to work at that yourself. To realize There's a purpose for all this metaphorical language concerning slavery. I want to, you know, it'd be a whole lot easier if I could just take a ball bat and beat my head and my body into subjection. That'd be the easy part. But we can't do that. We have to live and walk and move about through our lives and meet people and go places and and smell good things and all that. And then be in control. Paul, he must have been a pretty small fellow. That's all I can say. He must have been a master at controlling himself. I got to get off of that. That is a hard one. Um, Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. Now this is an interesting one. In verse six he says, of course, in verse five, he's addressing Dulos, or Duloi, should say, slaves, and he tells them to be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Now they're only masters according to the flesh. They're not the ultimate true master, of course that's Christ and so notice then what he says in the next verse he says not with eye service not as being I slaves is what the literal rendering of that word is I slaves or enslavement to the eye as men pleasers and that context there then gives you the idea of what he means it's a person who who labors or serves knowing somebody's watching them and they're doing it only to gain their favor. Now, of course, according to the flesh, he says, don't do that. Rather, he says, but as the slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Which, by the way, is there literally as doing it from the soul. Not the cardia, but the suke. Do it from your soul. Do it from the very depths of your being, of the innermost part of your being. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Serving as an, uh, 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 as a, with eye service, serving with enslavement to the eye, that's all external. That's all according to the flesh, and that profits nothing. Paul's telling us here we need to focus on the soul and serve Christ from the depths of our soul, being a slave to him. He says in verse 7, with goodwill, doing service, being a slave, literally, as to the Lord and not to men. Now, he's telling that to people who were slaves. But their attitude as one who belonged to Christ gave them the freedom to serve the Lord inwardly while they were serving their fleshly masters outwardly. You know, in 18th century slavery and 19th century slavery slavery here in America... It was very common for slaves, you know, they referred to their master, of course. It was their term of respect was master. But then when the, it was very common, and we don't, you know, we don't do this in our churches today, but it was very common for them in, in, to refer to the Lord Jesus as master. And when they would bow in prayer, they would re- say, master. And it was, it was a subtle way for them to let their earthly masters know that you aren't my real master. There's one greater than you, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my true master. And so though I may serve you outwardly, with my heart, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, my true master. And that's what Paul's talking about here, doing it from the very depths of your soul, serving him. Um, look at, I want to look at a couple other words here now that's not our familiar doulos word, but it's the, the root word is with O-I-K, which is where we get oikonomia, um, which is our, our English word economy. Okay, And there are some root, several roots that refer to, and it's translated as servant in the New Testament, and so you don't really have any way to know otherwise, unless you're looking at the Greek text to know it's it's a different word. So let's look at back at Luke chapter twelve, Luke chapter twelve, and verse forty two. In, ver- in verse 42 it says and the lord said who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season in other words the master of the house that not not well excuse me i wouldn't say master i don't want to confuse there but the, the manager of the household look at verse 43 Blessed is that slave. And so my point here is is that the steward, who was the manager over the household, who had the, the daily responsibilities of seeing that all the people under the household that belonged to the master, which could be all the family members plus all the slaves... It could be other people, clients, business clients of his. It depended on the situation. All of those, he was responsible for managing the household to make sure they got fed and provided for at the proper time. And so then in verse 43, though, he turns around and says, blessed is that slave. So we understand then the steward, the guy that was managing the house was actually a slave. Look, at chapter 16 of Luke. And we have the same situation. You're familiar again with this passage. He says, uh, He said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship for thou mayest no longer be steward. And he, as we read on, you would find that he was entrusted with a lot of financial responsibility and, you know, responded to that. But the point is, he was a slave who was in charge of a man's household or his entire estate or all the property that he owned. You know, he could have been a businessman who owned property out in the country, And had a vineyard, or as we would say, at a farm. And he had workers who worked the fields. Some were owners of mines, you know, where they mined uh, stone for the stone buildings that they were building and so on. And so there were all kinds of situations there. Then look down at verse 13 of the same chapter, and you see there it says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, that first word, no servant, is from our root word, it's oiketes, and it means a household slave. No household slave can be slaving if we were to say it literally, two masters. In other words, he can't be a slave for two different masters. He's going to either hold to the one, despise the other, or hate the one, love the other one, or whatever. But he's going to throw his loyalty to one or the other. And then the lesson, of course, then he draws it down to that you cannot serve or be a slave to God and money or mammon. It just can't be done. Now, if we um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, this will bring us about to the end here. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 6. this one was the one I said will surprise you maybe in verse well in verse 5 when Jesus was entered into Capernaum there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying Lord my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented and Jesus saith unto him I will come and heal him the centurion answered and said Lord I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard that, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And then up in verse 13, Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it unto thee. And his servant was healed at the selfsame hour. Now, you saw the word servant in verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 9, and in verse 13. Only the ones in verses 6 and 8 and 13 are the same. And it's not our word doulos. It is the word pais. Pais means A child. And in particular here, a male child, or as we would say it, a boy. And so if you read that literally, you would say, he would be saying, Lord, my boy lies home at sick, of the, uh, sick of the palsy. And in verse 18, but speak the word only and my boy shall be healed. Verse 13, and his boy was healed in the selfsame hour. Now, of course, contextually, he's talking about a servant, uh, a slave. And, of course, hopefully you, you want, we understand where we got the term in 18th century slavery here in America, referring to their slaves as boy. It was because they were owned. It was because they had no other rights. They were treated as a child. Just like in Galatians when Paul said a child was no different than a slave. And so this word began to carry the connotation of slave. The word in verse 9, the word servant there, is our word doulos for slave. And so he says, he's just now there it's used as an illustration. He says, I say to this one, go, and another come, and they do it. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. But if we'll look over to Luke chapter... um, 7 we have the same same incident taking place in Luke 7 and look at verse well we have to start with verses we'll read down through verse 10 Luke chapter 7 verse 1 he says now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people he entered into Capernaum and a certain centurion's slave who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his Dulas, his slave. And so when they came uh, to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loves our nation, he has built a synagogue, and so on. Verse 6, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying unto him, Lord, Trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter unto my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my pais shall be slave, uh, shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say, want to one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my slave, my do loss, do this and do that. My point here is you see that he's intermixing doulos and pais. And so in the context, they mean exactly the same thing. But you would never understand that or know that if you didn't look to the the language to see what word it was. And so in verse 10, they that were sent returning to the house found the slave whole that had been made sick. And so we realize it wasn't a little boy that he's talking about. It was a slave. ...that he was referring to. And so, all we're trying to say through all of this is simply is that the New Testament uses a lot of language that we are not accustomed to. We don't read it immediately, at least in English, to realize how much the slave-free or slave-ownership or the slave-lord connotations are there in Scripture and how they are contrasted with each other. And, of course, from this point on, I want to begin to use some of those. And I'm not going to preach, like I said, for months now on this topic. But just enough to let us see some of the value. The, the, um, you know, what we've been looking at, basically, is like as a historian. We look at the scriptures we see the facts. We said, "Yep, that's exactly how it says it. That's what the words are." You can't get away from that. But then there comes the faith element. How do you look? You know, how do we look at these things? How does that affect me? How does that affect my faith? How does that change my walk with Christ? What should that mean to my relationship to God? And it, you know, as one who is seeking a well-done, thou good and faithful slave it should have a big impact, a big impact. All those little nice things that Paul and Peter and James and Jude and so on talk about, about putting off this and putting on this. You know, language that is seasoned with grace. Well, that ought to change our life. That ought to change the way we talk. That ought to change how our attitudes are towards other people. You know, don't, don't steal anymore. Well, that ought to affect how we treat material goods and money and so on. And we'll look at some of those things. But I want to end here with a quote from a guy, R.C.H. Lenski. And he was a Lutheran pastor from years gone by, died in 1936. But he, he left, a, I think, a pretty powerful statement. And I mentioned something similar to this earlier, but he says here, he who as a slave to Christ submits his will to him in all he does is well-pleasing to God and need never fear to stand before his judgment seat. Now I thought that was pretty good for a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> of course, that was from a whole different generation than what you'll find today. Lutheran churches were a lot different then than they are now. But he, he who serves as a, uh, as a slave to Christ and submits his will to him and all that he does, he says, is well-pleasing. He, he's just making a categorical statement, is well-pleasing to God. And then finally, doesn't have any fear when it comes to standing before his judgment seat. You know, I think that's a great thing to know that if we've come to the end of our life and we've come to the finality, wrapping everything up like Paul did, and he said, I've finished my course, and I'm ready. Paul was confident. He knew that there was a crown waiting for him, and he, he need have no fear to face the Lord at his judgment seat because he had fulfilled all that the Lord had called him to do. And we have a calling to do as a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And you know, can you imagine if you were in a church, if you just start preaching something like this in a church of two or three thousand, how long that would last? Could you imagine if Joel Osteen with his twenty thousand started preaching like this? How long would they be there? You know, not long. They'd be flying out the doors. Exiting that big arena like you wouldn't believe. So you see, I don't mind that we have, I don't know what, 20 or 25 or 30 people here. Because I've been here long enough to know who you are. And if you haven't left because of this kind of preaching yet, then I think you're going to stay. I think you're going to stay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great privilege it's ours to be called slaves of God, a slave of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to know that we belong to him, that he is our master, that you own us. And Lord, I pray that because we know those things, then we, we would be diligent to make our lives conform to what a slave should be. And you've told us what to do to please you. You've told us about the good works we need to do. You've told us about the change of character that ought to be taking place in our hearts and our lives. You've told us about the way our tongues ought to be controlled and things should be different. So I pray that you would visit us, Father, in the power of your spirit to bring change upon each one of us who so desires and is so committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.